That's true. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And you, Lord Jesus, laid down your life for us. We thank you for that. So bless this time now, we pray, in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you turn with me, if you have a New King James Bible, to Psalm 2. And if you don't, you can look up on the screen and follow along with Pastor Bill, the other Pastor Bill, as we read through the second psalm this morning. I'll be reading the first and the odd-numbered verses, and Pastor Bill will lead us in reading the second and the even-numbered verses in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Amen to the reading of God's word. Would you turn with me to Revelation, the 16th chapter, for our study this morning? Revelation chapter 16. Everyone has heard the word Armageddon, but not everyone knows what it means. For some, it just means the end of the world, Armageddon, the end of the world. For others, it's, it's the name of a Hollywood movie, the movie Armageddon, an asteroid the size of the state of Texas travels at 22,000 miles an hour, and the Earth has 18 days to figure out a plan to avert ultimate disaster. For others, Armageddon is a future event that is prophesied in the Bible connected to the end of the world as we know it biblically. But it's interesting, you know, Christians aren't the only ones that are talking about the end of the world these days. Christians aren't the only ones that are talking about the last days or Armageddon. This is gaining widespread and increased popularity to talk about and write upon this subject. If you just did a search on the internet on the subject end of the world, you'd be amazed at how many resources come up. Books written about it, movies done on the subject. People are increasingly becoming aware that something very ominous is about to take place on planet Earth. And so the Christians who have been saying this all along, that Jesus is going to come back and prior to his return to the Earth, there is going to be a series of cataclysmic events leading to the ultimate second coming of Christ. We're not out there so to speak, in terms of what we're saying anymore. This is common. This is 
becoming more and more obvious to the people that are living in the world. Now, for those who read the book of Revelation, we understand chapters 6 through 19 as being future events. And Armageddon is actually a future or final battle. It involves Israel, it involves the Antichrist, it involves the armies that come into the Middle East from all of those nations east of the Euphrates River. And the battle ends when Jesus Christ comes to the earth to end the battle. We're going to look this morning at Revelation 16. It's a, it's a very hard chapter. It's the pouring out of seven bowls of wrath, the wrath of God, the final judgments of God prior to and leading up to Armageddon and to the ultimate second coming of Christ. It's not easy reading. And when we think about the things that are actually going to take place and spend some time on trying to imagine what it will be like, it's almost overwhelming. And if you're exposed to this kind of thing for the first time this morning, you're here visiting with us, uh, hang in there with us. This is just part of Bible prophecy. We're studying the whole book of Revelation from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through the end of chapter 22. And so there is a context to our comments. Uh, But just hang in there because this is part of a plan that God has. Now what is that plan? The plan is to pour out his wrath against all of those who have refused again and again and again his grace and mercy through Christ because they leave him no other option. But it's also to cleanse the earth and prepare the earth for the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is a dirty, foul, increasingly corrupt place, planet earth. And I'm not just talking about environmentally. Talking about morally and ethically and spiritually, it's a very dirty and dark place and becoming increasingly dirty and dark every single day, it seems. And so the Lord is moving against the earth, pouring out these bowls of wrath in order that he might cleanse the earth and prepare the earth for the second coming of Jesus Christ when he sets up his kingdom and his rule, which will never have an end. Chapter 16 is a great chapter. In verse 9, there's a great heat. In, chapter tw- in verse 12, there's a great river, Euphrates. In, chap- in verse 14, there's the great day of God Almighty. In verse 18 and 19, there's a great earthquake and great Babylon. And then in verse 21, great hell. Obviously, great is a term that describes the things that are going on here. Great in the sense of their immensity and of their impact. And it outlines the events, this chapter does, of the very last part of the Great Tribulation period. There's a future period called the Tribulation period, which is seven years long. It hasn't happened yet, obviously. It's in the future. It has to do with Israel and God bringing his people back to himself. It has to do with the final harvest of souls among the non-Jewish people that live in the world. It has to do with the judgment of God, as we've already outlined. And it has to do with the preparation of the earth for the second coming of Christ. But this chapter here outlines the very last part of that seven years, just before Jesus returns to the earth. And like we said in the chapter, the seven angels pour out their bowls of wrath. The devastation will be so thorough as described in this chapter, the destruction so complete that Jesus said in Matthew 24 that unless those days were to be shortened, 
no flesh would be saved. No one would survive it unless those days were shortened. And how are those days shortened? Jesus comes back. That's how the days are shortened. So again, a very ominous period in future human history. We start, obviously, with verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of wrath on the earth. Now, back in chapter 15, verse 8, if you remember what we looked at last week, it tells us that no one was able to enter the temple in heaven until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So if no one is able to enter the temple until these plagues are uh, completed, then whose voice is this voice, go pour, pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth? And the answer is, this is the voice of God himself. The only voice left in the temple is the voice of God himself. And so he is the one who is speaking to these angels, go and do this thing. The bowls of judgment are the third woe, back in Revelation 8 and 11. And because they are the third woe, they most likely occur right at the very end of this seven-year period. The wrath of God. In these bowls, the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. Verse 2. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth. And a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And so the very first one is a foul and a loathsome sore poured out upon those specifically who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image of the beast. So this isn't a, a sore and a, and a grievous disease that is poured out on other people. It's designed to be poured out on these particular individuals mentioned in the verse. Very similar to the plagues that came upon Egypt are three of the plagues that are poured out in these bowls here in this chapter. But it's interesting that the judgment is upon these particular individuals. Now, because these ones who have taken the mark of the beast, they have worshipped the image of the beast, they're the ones that receive this gross sore, whatever that sore might be, it also serves as a further warning to anyone who may be still in danger of taking the beast. Don't do it. This is a horrible decision. Don't do it. This is the judgment that has come upon those that have already taken this mark and have already worshipped the image of the beast. What is the foul and loathsome sore? It would be just speculation to try to guess, but it's foul and it's loathsome. And that's about all we need to know. Is it cancer of some type? Is it some sort of ulcer on the skin? We don't know. But it's obviously very, very painful. The second angel. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. That's hard to com uh, comprehend, isn't it? Every creature in the sea dies. Now, we see something like the Gulf uh, oil spill and, of course, the loss of sea life that is so terrible and difficult to deal with. But this completes the complete destruction of the sea. Every living creature in the sea dies. 
Back in chapter 8, there's a partial contamination of the sea. This is the completion of what was begun back then. And part of the reason for this would seem that it has to do with the fact that men have decided to worship the creation rather than the creator. And the worship of the creation itself is a fundamental mistake and error that human beings are making. making. God has designed the creation to be a demonstration of him and of what he's capable of and what he's able to do. Looking at the intricacies of creation all the way down into the smallest forms of life and then out into the vastness of creation, looking out into the deepest regions of the cosmos, we look at all of these things and we are to be led into the worship of God. Look at what all is, is. Look at all of these things. Look at the detail. Look at the genius. Look at the order. Look at the power. Look at the fact that the one who made all of these things had to precede all of these things, so he must be eternal. I mean, it's just awe-inspiring. And instead of worshiping the creation itself, God intended that we worship the Creator Himself. And in Romans chapter 1, it says that mankind exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creation rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's the problem. That's the issue here, that men have worshipped the wrong thing. And so what God does is he shows how futile that worship actually is and every living creature in the sea dies. Now he can make it all again, so it's not a problem for him to redo everything and and there will be uh, a lot of that happening before the millennial reign of Christ and then of course there will be a brand new heaven and a new earth that's created at the end of the thousand years, but uh, suffice it to say this is a horrible judgment, but it would seem to me to be connected to the ill-directed and wrongly-directed worship of man. And the third angel, verse 4, poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, You are righteous, O Lord, the one who is and who was and who is to be, because you have judged these things. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink, for it is their just due. And I heard another from the altar saying, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. So now we have the third angel pouring out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water. Every fresh water source uh, that exists on the planet is being contaminated by this particular plague. They became blood. And whether that was a corruption of the water supply so that it appeared like blood uh, or whether it was literal blood, it doesn't really matter. It was undrinkable. It was unusable. And, of course, no one can survive very long without drinkable uh, water. Therefore, this has to be near the very end prior to the second coming of Christ. The human race with this disaster couldn't last very long. Now it's interesting. What had these refused? 
they had refused the living water that Jesus provides. And so what does the Lord give them? He gives them bloody water, which, uh, of course, is a judgment upon them. What had they done? Well, their judgment was righteous in verses 5 and 6 because this same group had shed the blood of saints and prophets because of the fact that they had persecuted and killed the church throughout the ages. Because of that, the judgment that they receive is a very fitting judgment, and everyone recognizes that. And this angel of the waters, interesting that there is an angel of the waters, makes this statement about the righteousness of God. And another from the altar in heaven says the same thing. Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now the thing about this is that right now we have a hard time wrapping our minds around the immensity of all of this, and I understand that. But in that day and at that time when these things occurred, no one will disagree with these judgments. Everyone will see that they are fitting and everyone will see that they are right and they are just. Speaking of the rightness and the justice of God himself. The fourth bowl, verses 8 and 9. Then the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and power was given to him to scorch men with fire. And men were scorched with great heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues and they did not repent and give him glory. So some sort of a cataclysmic event related to the sun and it's uh, the great power that comes forth from the sun being unleashed upon the earth and men are scorched with fire with great heat. Now what is their reaction? Notice the text. Instead of giving God glory, instead of repenting, they blaspheme the name of God who has power over these plagues and they do not repent. Now what this tells me is that extreme judgment does not produce repentance. Extreme judgment does not produce repentance. If they will not be won by the grace of God, and if they will not be won by the warnings of God, they will not be won by the extreme judgment of God. Their hearts at this point, those that are in this category, are so hardened and so set against the Lord that nothing will convince them. They had an opportunity, perhaps, not if they've already taken the mark, but uh, those who had not, they could have repented and given him glory. And to put it in a crude way, and I don't mean to be irreverent here, but hell could not be scared out of them. It literally could not be scared out of them. Uh, Which tells us something, of course, about the nature of our ministry as believers. Uh, We are called to do what? To preach the gospel. We are called to tell people about God and about his son Jesus Christ and about the work that Jesus performed for us at Calvary and about his resurrection from the dead. That is the focus of our message. And where we do need to bring in the law, we bring it in only to show individuals their need for a savior if they're not aware of it. And that's the focus of our message. Jesus said, the son of man did not come into the world to condemn the world but that through him 
the world might be saved. Well, if Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to give the world good news, so much more, we who are his followers do not come into the world to condemn the world, but also to give them good news. So that's our focus. But this just points out here as we read these passages that extreme judgment did not produce repentance. The fifth angel, verse 10. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And his kingdom became full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. The kingdom of the beast, that is. They gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their swords. And they did not repent of their deeds. So, the beast, who is the Antichrist, remember from chapter 13, the beast has a kingdom. He's been able to somehow persuade much of the world to follow him and his program. And it's a very dark program. So what is the judgment upon him? The judgment upon him and his kingdom is darkness. Because that's what he brought to the earth was the rule of darkness. Now, what is darkness anyway? It's simply the absence of light. So what the beast did, and what his kingdom does, is it removes all light from his kingdom. It removes every trace of truth, every trace of the good news of Christ, every trace of the person of Christ, removes it all. And when we go into an area, or into a community, maybe we're traveling on a on a business trip or on a vacation, you know, you can sense in certain areas, this is a dark place. And there are certain places where you sort of feel that way, that it's a dark place, and you wonder what's going on spiritually in that, in that area. Well, it's not hard to figure out what's really going on, bottom line, is that the light of the gospel and the light of the person of Christ has been covered or hidden or even removed from that place. They don't want much of him, if anything of him at all, in that area. And it's a dark place. Because with the removal of Christ comes the removal of every good part of who he is. The grace of God is removed. The truth of God is removed. The joy of the Lord is removed. Forgiveness is removed. Hope is removed. Eternal life is removed. Understanding about who God is is removed. Understanding of what our purpose is here on this earth is removed. Everything's removed when you remove the light of Christ. And so that makes that place a very dark place. And that's exactly what Antichrist will do. The beast in his kingdom, he will remove or attempt to remove every trace of light from his kingdom. Therefore, the punishment upon him is the punishment of great darkness. And it's so painful that this is described here as them gnawing their tongues because of the pain. And it's one of the descriptions of the eternal judgment, by the way. Jesus said that the unprofitable servant would be cast into the outer darkness where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so that's one description of eternal judgment. It's just a place of eternal darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's just no way to escape the complete and total absence of light 
that they experience there forever and ever and ever. And why are they experiencing that there? Because that's the life they wanted. God won't force anyone to live a life that they don't want to live. And if they try hard enough and refuse the grace and the goodness and the love of God hard enough, then they have sealed their own fate and they've decided that they want to live in an eternity apart from God, having nothing to do with him. That's called darkness. And it's called outer darkness as well. That's what the beast and his kingdom experience. What is their reaction? Well, again, like the previous one, they blaspheme God and they do not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel, verses 12 through 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. The Lord Jesus speaking in the midst of this prophecy. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So the sixth angel, when he pours out his bowl, he pours it out on the river. And a couple of things happen during the pouring out of this bowl. The river Euphrates is dried up. That has a certain implication and a certain reaction. And then the second thing that happens is that these unclean demons, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And it all culminates in this battle of Armageddon. The river Euphrates is strategically located. You can see it there with the red line on the graphic on the screen, just east of Israel. And so that body of water would be dried up, which would prepare, in the next slide, for the kings and the people from all of these nations to advance towards the Middle East and toward the area where the Battle of Armageddon will be fought. And given the fact that the Euphrates will be dried up, it will give them opportunity to move westward with great ease. Now David Guzik asks the question, why do these armies come? Do they come into the land of Israel, into this place called Har Megiddo, uh, to wipe out Israel? Do they come to rebel against the Antichrist? Yes and yes. They come to try to wipe out Israel. There's a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism that exists in the regions beyond the Euphrates River. And so they're coming to try to wipe out Israel, but they're also coming to rebel against the Antichrist and his kingdom, and that's another purpose. But ultimately, and there's the biggest reason that they're coming, they're coming to do battle against God and against his Messiah, which is what we read about this morning in Psalm 2. The kings of the earth have taken their stand and their counsel against the Lord and against his Messiah. And they have said, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. God's attitude from his perspective in heaven 
He laughs. He holds them in derision. He looks at their feeble attempts to try to rebel against him, and it's an attempt that amounts to nothing, and he knows that. So he laughs with a derisive kind of a laugh. So that's what the purpose of this drying up of the Euphrates is. It prepares the way of the kings of the east to come into this battle. But along with that, drying up of the Euphrates, there are also the releasing of these demons, these three unclean spirits that come out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophets. Very interesting. There is an unholy trinity that forms in the very last days. We have, of course, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Here's the unholy trinity. The dragon, which is the devil, the beast, which is the Antichrist, and his false prophet. And the unholy trinity has lots to say in this day, during this time of judgment. And these demons go out of their mouths and convince uh, the armies and so on uh, to gather to this great day of the battle of God Almighty. But Jesus, he has his warning to share, and his warning is that he's coming as a thief. Now, this isn't a reference to the rapture here in verse 15, because for those who believe, the coming of Jesus is not as a thief. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, you're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. The coming of Jesus Christ for the true believer is something that we look forward to. You don't look forward to. You can't anticipate a thief. A thief comes by surprise when you're not expecting him to come. He breaks in violently and and rapes you uh, emotionally by stealing what you own. That's what a thief does. But in this particular case, uh, uh, Jesus said, I'm coming as a thief. This has to do with his second coming. This has to do with his return to the earth. And for many, those that are in rebellion, who do not repent and give God glory, his coming to the earth is the coming as a thief. He is coming in judgment. He's coming with power. He's coming to deal with them and with their unrighteousness. So that's the idea here. And what he tells us in verse 15 gives us another beatitude in the New Testament The one who watches and keeps his garments, which is the righteousness of Christ, uh, is the one who is blessed. And the thing to avoid is to walk naked and to walk in shame. John says in his epistle, 1 John 2.28, Little children, abide in him. That when he appears, you will have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And that is exactly what we need to be doing. Walking filled with the Spirit of God, walking in truth, walking in the light, walking confidently. Lord Jesus, I'm expecting you to return, maybe today. And I want you, when you return, to find me doing that which pleases you. What a great motivation. John said in his his epistle in chapter 3, We are now the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we do know that when he appears, we'll be like him, for we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him, of seeing him as he is, of being like him, everyone who has this hope in him, purifies himself, just as he is pure. It's a tremendous motivation to live a holy life. That's why it's important to think about the second coming 
and to pray the last prayer in the Bible, even so, come Lord Jesus. It's important to keep our lamps burning and our waists girded and, and be prepared and ready for Jesus to return by the way we live. And that's the word of counsel here that Jesus gives. And he gathered them together, these uh, demons that go out speaking these things. They gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, which is uh, the word, it's a Hebrew word, Har Megiddo, meaning, meaning the mountain of Megiddo. Now, Megiddo is basically a village there south and west a little bit of the Sea of Galilee, uh, but they have built numerous uh, civilizations on top of one another in this uh, thing that they now call Tel Megiddo. It's a archaeological dig site. You can see the remains of numerous layers of civilizations that have lived on that mountain. It was such an important location, though, because it was right there overlooking the Via Mara, which is a uh, transportation route from Egypt all the way up west and north of the Galilee and all the way over into the area of Mesopotamia where Assyria are and where Babylon are. And so it was the number one trade route and it was also the number one route that was used for warfare. So if the Assyrians got mad at the Egyptians and wanted to battle them, they would travel along that trade route. So to defend that particular location was very, very important to defend it. And if you go to Israel, you'll go up on top of Tel Megiddo and you'll look over that whole valley and you can see for miles and miles and in all directions these huge plains and these huge valley uh, that's there. That's where the final battle will be fought, right there in the uh, area of that valley below Tel Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo, uh, below the mountain of Megiddo, Armageddon. So that's what Armageddon is. It's really a mountain, uh, which is overlooking a valley where this battle will be fought. And in history, all the way dating back to the 15th century up until the 20th century, over 200 battles were fought in that region. But there hasn't been a significant battle fought in that region uh, until the early part of, or since the early part of the 20th century, but there will be during uh, this time, the last very uh, moments of the tribulation period. And it's called the Battle of Armageddon. So now you know what the Battle of Armageddon is. It has to do with the Antichrist and his armies. It has to do with the armies of the kings of the east and all of those that are in rebellion against the Antichrist and his armies. You can read about those rebellions in Daniel chapter 11. They all come together in this valley. They fight a war with each other. And when we'll see when we get to chapter 19, they're fighting against one another, trying to gain supremacy. Everyone's trying to wipe everybody else out. And then Jesus returns. And when Jesus returns, they look and see him coming. Instead of fighting each other, they turn and attempt to fight against him. And, of course, he defeats them. Uh, by just speaking a word with a sword that comes out of his mouth. So that's the scene of Armageddon, and certainly it will take place. Now we come to the seventh angel, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. So this is the final Event. This is a prophetic announcement. 
This is what is called in biblical prophecy the prophetic past tense. It's speaking of a future event in the past tense as though it had already occurred. And that's the announcement here. It is done. It is done. It is done. It's all being wrapped up at this time. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now that's quite a statement. The greatest earthquake the world has ever seen. And we know that there are tremendous ancillary results from any earthquake. You've got the floods and the landslides and the tsunamis and and the fires and all of the things that happen along with a great earthquake. Well, this is the greatest earthquake the world has ever seen. Who knows what it measures on the Richter scale, but it's intense. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 28, uh, cites this earthquake along with a warning. But God says, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. So God predicts one final shaking of the earth. Now there are earthquakes that happen every day, of course. Most of them aren't felt or experienced by us, somewhere in the 2 to 3 range on the Richter scale, but this one's the big one. So will California split off into the ocean? Probably. But it'll probably happen, well, who knows when it'll happen, but it's definitely going to happen. If it hasn't happened by the end of the tribulation period, it will definitely happen then. It always cracks me up to think about the folks that live in other parts of the world, and they're so worried about Californians you know, living in earthquake country. So where is it you live? You live in Kansas? Okay, what do you deal with every year? My goodness. Or you live in Florida, what do you deal with every year? Uh, you know, we got a mate out here. But not when this one hits. Nobody's going to have it made when this one hits. The greatest earthquake the world has or will ever see. Now the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceedingly great. So the great city that fell in three parts, divided into three parts, is the city of Jerusalem. We know that from chapter 11 of Revelation. Great Babylon is apparently the rebuilt city of Babylon, which will be built there uh, somewhere in the area of modern Iraq. Uh, Isaiah chapter 13 refers to that. Uh, initial judgment upon Babylon, but we'll see in the next two weeks what that Babylon is all about. So that city falls. and But then it also says the cities of the nations fell. So that's quite a statement. The cities of the nations falling. When we went to Pakistan, I didn't know anything about the, 
the cities of Pakistan. I knew a few of their names, but the city that we initially went to, I had never heard of it. It's called Lahore. And then I looked it up, L-E-H-O-R-E. Then I looked it up and discovered there were 10 million people in that city. How can you not hear about a city of 10 million people? But I hadn't heard about it. And then they said, okay, the second seminar is going to be in a town called Hafizabad. So I tried to get them to tell me, how large is this town of Hafizabad? And they couldn't communicate with me in English a number that I could understand. And then I looked it up later. 1.5 million people in Hafizabad, the town of Hafizabad. You take all of these unknown cities and all of the major cities, New Mex- or Mexico City, 30 million people, Tokyo, 27 million people, huge numbers of people in these massive cities all over the world, and all of the cities of the world fall at this very last moment before Jesus Christ returns. And God remembers great Babylon, and he gives her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And again, we're going to read about those uh, events in chapters 17 and 18 in the next couple of weeks. The islands flee away. So see you later, Hawaii. Every island fled away. Mountains not found. See you, Everest. And this great hailstone, each hailstone about the weight of a talent, How much does a talent weigh? About 75 pounds. So 75-pound hailstones coming out of heaven to the earth. And what did men do? Verse 21, they blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. Instead of repenting, instead of believing, they blaspheme God. So there are the seven bulls. And I understand it's not thrilling reading. It's difficult reading. It's hard reading. Uh, But it's true. These are the things that are going to be taking place in rapid-fire succession at the end of the tribulation period. So what do we do with this information? How do believers use the truth of this chapter? Well, one thing that we can use this, this chapter for is that we can help people understand what the true meaning of Armageddon is. Now you know what the true meaning of Armageddon is, what the Bible says about this battle of Armageddon. And that's important. So if you're sitting around the lunch table at work and somebody mentions Armageddon, you can intelligently let them know what Armageddon really is. It's not a, uh, a huge meteor the size of the state of Texas coming to crash against the earth. It's a war. It involves all these different parties that are, that are involved in it. So that's important. Uh, can we use the truths of this chapter to scare people into believing? Obviously not. So it can't be used for that purpose. From verse 9, 11, and 21, it's evident that we can't use it for that purpose. But we can show people that God is the only one that knows the future, and he has a 100% accuracy record. And God, of course, is the one who predicts future events. Isaiah 46 says he knows the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, he declares the things that are not yet done. 
from his vantage point in eternity, he being an eternal God who lives outside of the constraints of time, he knows exactly what's going to happen and he knows exactly what has ever happened. He sees it all in one field of vision that he possesses as the eternal God. So he, from time to time, will let us know what is in his eternal field of vision. And that's what biblical prophecy is. And whatever God has predicted in the past, uh, leading up to events that have already been fulfilled, he's been 100% accurate with every one of those events. Everything that he had to say about the first coming of Messiah came true. Everything that he has had to say about the nation of Israel has come true, is coming true, and shall come true. Everything that he has to say about the future seven years will come true. And I kind of look at it like this. I've got some pennies here on the plat- on the uh, podium. Dropped a couple of them. I marked one of them red. Can you see that that's red? Kind of hard to see that it's red, but by faith, believe that this is red. Okay. Let's just say that these pennies represent biblical prophecy. Okay. So I'm going to pick the first penny. Oops, it's not red. Okay. The second penny, not red. Third penny, not red. Fourth penny, not red. Fifth, not red. Sixth, not red. Seventh and eighth, not red. Ninth, not red. I got one penny left. What do you think the odds are that this last penny is going to be red? 100%. That's just like biblical prophecy. God has fulfilled everything that he has said up to the present. What do you think the odds are that the things that haven't been fulfilled will be fulfilled? I would say the odds are pretty good. More like 100%. What God has said has come to pass. What he has said about the future that has not yet come to pass will come to pass. So people are freaked out, right? They're just horrified with the idea of what might happen in 2012 when certain things happen to the sun. And others down in South America and other parts of the world are freaked out about the prophecies regarding 2012 uh, that come out of the Mayan uh, culture and then other people are freaked out about the environment and other people are I mean there's just a lot of fear going on today and Jesus talked about that fear in the gospel of Luke he said that in these last days chapter 21 he writes that in these days there would be the nations that are filled with perplexity and men's hearts would fail them for fear of the coming expectation of the things that are coming to pass on the earth People are terrified, they're afraid, and if they spend any time on it all, thinking about where this world is headed, they should be afraid. But you and I have the message that can set them free from their fears. And the message that we have is that God is good. And this planet, this tired, old, sin-plagued, weary, cancerous planet, has got to come to an end. But it's a merciful thing that God brings it to an end. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a merciful thing. The worst thing would be that it all continues like it is. The best thing is that this stops. The Lord says, okay, the madness stops right here. I'm done. I'm totally done. I'm done. No more. 
I'm sending my son. He's going to make all things new. That's the message that God has for us, and we can share that with people that are all around us. And listen, you know, God has already revealed to us the Son, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Psalm 2 says, Kiss the Son, lest, you be, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. Well, right now is an opportunity to kiss the Son by faith. To let Him come into your life. To let Him come into your heart. To let Him forgive your sins. To let Him love you the way you've never been loved before. The way to give you peace that you've never had before. To give you joy that you've never known anything about before. To bring you into a family of believers who love you. Who care about you. To change your whole life. To free you from the addictions and the bondages that have come into your life. We've got great news for you. You're freaked about out about these things that are coming to pass. Amen. You should be. But Jesus Christ has fixed it. And he's fixing it for you if you come to faith in him. That's our message. It's a great message. God sent his son. Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead. It's all true. Amen? Amen. So that's where we go with chapter 16. That's how we help the people that are around us. And may God open up lots of doors for us to help lots of people that are around us whose hearts are failing them for fear. Amen? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never made that commitment to Jesus. You've never trusted Him. You can this morning. You can kiss the Son. You can open your heart to Him and say, Lord, I believe that You died for me. And I want You to come into my life and take over. I want You to be my Lord. And I want You to be my Savior. And I want to start living for You. I believe You died for me. I believe You rose from the dead. You can accept Him this morning, right now, at this time. And begin the first day of your eternity right now. Because the Bible says... As many as received him, to them he gave eternal life and the authority to be his sons. He gives you eternal life and you start your eternity right now. God wants to do that for you. He loves you so much, it's hard to even comprehend how much God loves you and me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and that you have told us the things that are going to be coming to pass and that you have told the world around us the things that are going to be coming to pass. And we ask, Lord, that you would just use our lives as your instruments, as your missionaries, as your witnesses to go out into the world and share with as many as we can the great news of what you've done for us through Christ. And we pray this morning for anyone that is needing and wanting to make that decision right now to come to Christ. We pray that the Spirit of God would work in every heart and in every life right now. And as we're uh, just in this attitude of prayer, if you're wanting to receive the Lord Jesus this morning, would you just do me a favor and just stand right where you're seated? I want to have a word of prayer with you, a few words from you, with you, and then we'll call you up and, and give you some literature following the service and help you get a good start on this Christian life. Anybody this morning wanting to re- and needing to receive Jesus Christ, you've never received him before. You've never invited Jesus Christ into your life. You've not known him yet as your Savior. You're not sure you're going to heaven when you die. You're not absolutely certain that if you were to die today, that the next thing that you'd experience when you open your eyes in eternity is you'd be face to face with the Lord Jesus. 
in heaven. If you're not certain about that, you don't know and you haven't received him, receive him now. Just stand where you're seated and I'll acknowledge you and we'll have a word of prayer. Anyone this morning? And any of you that are watching this on the internet or listening to it on a CD or by streaming or anybody of you that are even watching it right now, you can make the decision right now to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Right where you're seated, you can pray this prayer. You can say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Please forgive me of my sins. I believe you died for me. And I believe you rose from the dead. And I know you're coming back again. I ask you to come into my life. So come into my life, Lord Jesus. Make me a new person. Give me power over the things that I'm in bondage to. Give me power over sin that I might live for you. And if you pray a prayer like that and you really mean it, the Lord Jesus will do that work. And then the next thing I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to find a body of believers, a body of believers where the Bible is believed as God's word, where Jesus is believed as the Son of God, and uh, where the gospel is being preached. Find that body of believers and go there and start going there regularly and make that decision. God bless you, and uh, we just uh, thank the Lord for his word. Amen? Let's stand together for a closing worship song. The pastors will be uh, available for prayer following the service, so I'd encourage you to come on up and receive prayer from them, uh, prayer for physical healing or just some issue that's going on in your life, something you need strength for and wisdom for this week. Uh, come on up and receive prayer uh, as soon as the service is concluded. And we'll close with the worships on now. God bless you and have a great week in Jesus. Remember, wrap at 12.15 or so. Feel free to hang around for that. And I guess there's a bunch of other stuff going on too that I can't remember all the announcements. So you'll remember. God bless you.